We're in a study of the first book of Samuel. Today I'm going to share with you about the four escapes of David. Human beings are constantly set against the will of God. And James says that's the reason why there's so many quarrels, so many fights, so many wars on this planet. If people, if their wills were in harmony with God, they would be in harmony with each other. He says this, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Just as a child defies their parent, a two-year-old child, defies their parent because they don't want they don't want the authority. They want to do what their parent tells them. So adults want to be free of the moral restraints of God. We're seeing the evidence of that in our society. It's nothing new. It's around. But the scripture says that God has made Jesus sovereign over all this earth, over the heavens, over the earth, and beneath the earth. Colossians 2.10, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. So every human will that is not aligned to accepting and affirming that Jesus Christ is sovereign, that his will is sovereign over everything, is in conflict with him. This is what Psalm 2 presents to us. It does it in the form of a question. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So the proclamation of the gospel is salvation, it's healing, but it's also the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and that as you accept him as Lord, you bring your will into alignment with his will. Psalm 2 encourages everyone from kings to every individual on the earth to align your will with God that it'll go better for you if you do. If you don't, your will will be aligned at some point, but it will be much more difficult. James says, humble yourself and submit to the Lord. It's far more easier to humble ourselves before God than to have God humble us. Psalm 2.10 says, Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. That is an admonition to bring our will in alignment with the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of the Lord had enabled David to perform a phenomenal feat, a remarkable feat of killing the Philistine giant. And as a consequence of that, he was brought into Saul's service. At first, Saul was very favorably disposed to David. But because God was with David and gave him success in everything he did, it aroused a jealousy, a fear and a jealousy in David. And Saul tried unsuccessfully to take David's life. These were secret attempts. But now the tension has gotten so great that Saul has decided to declare David a fugitive and he wants to enlist the help of his son, Jonathan, and everyone. He wants to deal with David. David lives in a tension of being king. Not everyone knows that, but he has been anointed king. But he's not king yet. We know something about this tension. We have become citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but we're not there yet. 
We have been promised eternal life, but we still have bodies that are dying. So we live in the promise of eternal life and heaven, but not yet. This is the, the challenge for David. So we're going to look at the four escapes where David narrowly escapes with his life. God obviously is bringing about provincial protection for David's life because in any one of these four incidents, David's life could have been snuffed out. The first one, he uses Jonathan, who's already showed his allegiance and his affection for David, even though he was the king to be. He took off his robes, his, his royal robes, his sword, his spear, gave them to David as an act of abdication, that he realized who David was and what David had planned for him. So Saul's hostility becomes very open now. Chapter 19, verse 1, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David. Saul is unaware of what David, the covenant that Jonathan has made with David. After Saul makes this so public, tells his son and all the, all the attendants in the palace, I want, I want this guy dead, Jonathan intervenes. To do that, he will have to set himself against his father's will. He chooses to align himself with David rather than with Saul. The story continues, but Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning, go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. So the first thing Jonathan does is warn David of his father's intentions. And then he sets up a scenario where he's going to carry on a conversation with his father. And he's, he's going to explore his father's full intentions. Does he really seriously plan on killing David? And he's going to do it in David's hearing. David is going to be hidden. And David will hear the conversation and can draw his own conclusions. And then Jonathan will do the same. So he says, I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. So here is the conversation between Jonathan and his father. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel. You saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Jonathan has thought out this answer because it's a very, very logical, morally correct answer that he gives to his, to his father. First of all, he, his father is the king, and he, it's kind of a dangerous thing to say to the king that you are doing wrong by taking an innocent man's life. Besides that, he has done nothing wrong to you. He has benefited you, and he's benefited the whole nation. In fact, you rejoiced at his feet, which led to the defeat of the, of the enemy. And Jonathan ends his argument by saying, to take the life of an innocent man is sin. The conversation between Jonathan and Saul is effective, and Saul actually changes his mind and says that he will not. Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, 
David will not be put to death. Now, Jonathan had tried to kill his own son. You remember some time back was when they were in the middle of battle. Saul is very moody, very flighty, and he, he has a nature that has become tremendously upset by his stubbornness, by his jealousy. So he's a very unstable person mentally. But for now, there is some immediate momentary relief about David. The second escape, the second escape that comes for David is from Saul's spear. It's in verse 8. Once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. We don't know how much time there is between verse 7 and 8. Probably a few years. David had continued to do good. This momentary relief for Saul takes the target off of David, granted David some freedom. He continued to live his life as a commander of the army. And when war broke out, David is in the middle of it and God gives him success. But then the second escape for David emerges with this huge hostility and rage from Saul. Saul actually tries to kill David personally. And this is not new. He tried it before. In verse 9, But an evil spirit from the Lord came to Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. Now I've covered this evil spirit. It is a troubled spirit that the Lord allows. It's a, it's a mental deranged spirit that, that the Lord is allowing Saul to be troubled because of his rebellious attitude that he refuses to obey the Lord. He has done this from the beginning, and this is the reason he has been rejected. So he enters into this, this very, very troubled mood, unstable mood. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Now, this is the second time that he has tried this. It's an interesting thing that when Pharaoh refused to let the children of Israel go, and at first it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then later in the story, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The truth of it is, when we harden our heart against God, it continues to harden. So whatever we hear from God, whatever happens, it causes us to harden. It's an interesting thing. If you took a stick of butter out on the parking lot when it's 90 degrees, and you also took a dish of soft clay, the sun would do two distinct things. It would melt the butter, but it would harden the clay. The heart of Pharaoh hardened by the very presence of God because his heart was already disposed against God. The same thing happens with Saul here. His heart is hardened and it gets harder against God. And this evil spirit or this troubled mood that he gets in is he's setting himself up, willfully setting himself up against God's will. That is the tremendous danger of stubbornness is that it moves us further and further from God's will. So David escapes the spear and he goes home. I mean, he thinks he's safe in his own home, but he's wrong. The circumstances of the third escape happen when Saul actually tries to kill David in his own home. 
Verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So this is part of the palace. David's house is probably on the, the outside wall. Escaping from the house means he's going to escape from the city also. Michal, like her brother, she's the princess, and like her brother, both of them are committed to David, and they're doing what they can to save David's life, aligning themselves actually against their father. Verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window, and he fled and escaped. Now, this would, this would be the end of David's relationship with Saul from this point forward. It's going to set up 13 years of being a fugitive. In order for this escape to take place, there's the cooperation of his wife. And she uses a, a plan which is effective, and she employs deception. In verse 13, Then Michal took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. Now, what, what in the world was an idol doing in the palace? But whatever this idol is doing, she doesn't seem to respect it because she's using it in a profane way. But she puts this idol in the bed, puts goat hair on it. And when Saul's men come, verse 14, when Saul sent the men to capture David, Michal said, he's ill. So they don't even bother. They believe the story. But when they come back to Saul, Saul sent the men back to, to see David and told them, bring him up to me in the bed so that I may kill him. Get him out of the bed. And what do I care? So when they go back, they find out they had been deceived. But when the men entered, there was the idol in, in the bed and at the head was some goat's hair. So it was too late. David was gone. And here is McCall, David's wife, explaining to her father what has happened. Saul said to McCall, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? McCall told him, he said to me, let me get away. Why should I kill you? At this point, there's no persuasion for Saul. The only way that these escapes are working is to play the same game with him. And David actually now has made the escape and will not return to Saul's presence. That's the third escape. There's the fourth one, which is the most remarkable because this is an actual intervention by the Spirit of God to save David's life. Because ever heard the refrain, if you want anything done right, do it yourself? Well, this is where Saul is right now. We're going to see that as this story develops. In verse 18, when David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naioth and stayed there. Now, Ramah was very close to where Saul is, Ramah. There has been no communication between Samuel and Saul because God's intention is that the authority, the ultimate authority for his people would rest with the prophet. And since Saul has been rebellious and disobedient to God's will, Samuel cut off all communication with him, and there has been no intervention. But Samuel has had no 
he's had no contact with with David, who is the new appointed king. But now David, escaping for his life, goes to Samuel, and he tells him everything that has happened. The attempts on his life and how they've intensified, and he barely escaped with his life. This had to be painful for Samuel to hear, since he loved Saul. And it grieved his heart that Saul had refused to repent and turn his life around, and that the kingdom had been taken away from him, even though he's still king. And God was not with Saul. He was with David. Now Saul attempts to kill David himself. In verse 19, word came to Saul, David is in a certain place, so he sends men to capture him. This actually, it's comical. Saul finds out he's at the area where Samuel is, so he sends people to capture him. Verse 20, but when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader. So Samuel's a prophet and evidently is a school of prophets. And these prophets are prophesying. Maybe they're singing a song. They're under the direction of the Spirit of God. So when these messengers come, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. This isn't something they're, oh, well, let's just join in here. This is something that happened. It wasn't a willing thing. The Spirit of God kind of spilled over on them. To the surprise of everyone, these, as these messengers approached uh, this band of prophets, they're overpowered by the Spirit of God, and they also do the same thing that the prophets are doing. Saul hears about this, so he, he sends another group of messengers, and they do the same thing. And then he sends a third group, and they do the same thing. Verse 21, Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent a men a third time, and they also prophesied. So here's where Saul says, all right, you need something done, do it yourself. So I'm not sending any more people to go up there and make a mess out of this. I'll do it myself. Verse 22, finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern of Siku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? He doesn't seem to be as informed as his messengers because they had found Samuel immediately. So they get direction, and you can imagine this powerful king with his entourage. He is looking for David, wants to kill him. What he plans to do with Samuel, I don't know. Verse 23, so when Saul went to Nioth, to Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he too, what had happened to the messengers happens to him, and he begins to prophesy. Now, this is it's not a willingness on his part, just like it had not been with the other men. Verse 24, he stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. Oh, this is the most shocking thing. Three distinct groups. Saul is the fourth, and the Spirit of God overpowers him. So much so that he's laid prostrate. He strips off his royal robes. What Jonathan had willingly done as a symbol of abdicating the throne and acknowledging that David was the king, Saul does now by the compulsion of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God humbled Saul in this moment and prevented him from doing any harm to David. And David makes his fourth escape. This powerful king is laid helpless by the Spirit of God. 
It's a very comical illustration, but it's actually God saving David's life. Number one, David had been rescued from a murderous plan by Jonathan speaking to his father. Then secondly, he'd been rescued from Saul's spear by his ability, his agile ability to elude the spear. Thirdly, he had been saved with the cooperation of his wife and a plan of deception. He escaped out of the window and out of the city. And then fourthly, he's rescued by the Spirit of God intervening in a powerful way over Saul's life and overpowering him, allowing David to escape. Again, the words of Psalm 2 seem to be so fitting right here. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. What did Saul think he was going to do? Now, it is interesting that Psalm 59, now when you're reading the Psalms and the NIV version gives you titles, Pay attention to those titles because they're very helpful. Now, if you turn to Psalm 59, we'll show it here. It actually says the setting for this psalm is when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. So the very thing we're writing about, later on, years later, David wrote about that, remembering back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. That's very real as David remembers back to that moment. Four escapes all very close together were his life flashing before him of how it could be taken. And he'll spend the next 13 years dodging an army as a fugitive. Verse 16 of Psalm 59, but I will sing of your strength in the morning. I will sing of your love for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. That makes that Psalm much more powerful, much more meaningful to think that it was written in a moment when David was facing death and he narrowly escaped. Those that were for David worked with him. They aligned their will with him. Those that were against him aligned their wills against him. It was that way with Jesus. There was a similar jealousy that Saul had, a similar jealousy for Jesus. And Jesus had done no wrong. He'd done good for all. He brought benefit to all. Jonathan rejoiced in David's accomplishment while Saul was jealous and fearful. Those who delight in the goodness and the grace of the Lord will serve him. And God will be your fortress. He will be your help. Consider the foolish wickedness of Saul. There's no room for Saul to blame anyone but himself. The study of Saul is a a study in sadness, that a person so full of potential, so talented, should waste it all away. But there's a little bit of Saul in all of us. A.W. Tozer, who pastored many different churches, never attended seminary, but 
like Abraham Lincoln, seemed to, to find a way to educate himself and wrote 70-something books. Many of them are still being read today. The most famous book, none of his books are big books, they're small, is The Pursuit of God. In The Pursuit of God, here is an excerpt. The ancient curse will not go out painlessly. The tough old miser within us will not lie down and die obedient to our command. He must be torn out of our heart like a plant from the soil. He must be extricated in agony and blood like a tooth from the jaw. He must be expelled from our soul by violence as Christ expelled the money changers from the temple. And we shall need to still ourselves against his piteous begging and to recognize it as springing out of self-pity, one of the most reprehensible sins of the human heart. There is that old man, that sinful man inside of all of us. And I do agree with Tozer. It's a big job to get rid of him. Try pulling the weeds out of your flowers. They don't just, just come out. Oh, please pull me out. You pull them, they break off. You got to get down at the bottom and pull them out. You can pull the flower out like that. You can pull the beautiful one out, but not those tough weeds. And these stubbornness and rebelliousness and these characteristics of Saul, they are there and can only be pulled out with that kind of fierce determination. Let me sum up four things about today's message. Number one, God will make a way of escape if you're serving him. David was his anointed, his will was aligned, and you may think there's no way of escape, but God will make a way of escape if you're serving him. Number two, learn to trust God as David did in these crucial, dangerous moments. It is in these moments that David learned to trust. That's what the Psalm 59 is all about. Third, Saul's stubbornness kept him from having what he wanted, God's blessing. The very thing he wanted, it kept him from ever having. And fourthly, there's no neutral ground when it comes to Christ. That's the lesson we're learning from David. We either are for him or against him. Either our will is aligned with his or it's aligned against him.